Good morning. Luke chapter 9 this morning. Luke chapter 9. Um, while you're turning there, I am so thankful that next week, I'll just be totally honest with you, I only have to preach once on Sunday morning next week. <laughs> and um, in many ways, I appreciate your patience. Um, I used to think that I made all my mistakes in the first service, and maybe I did, but what I find myself doing is I question myself, even as I'm up here speaking to you, did I say that in the first service, or how did I say that in the first service? So I'm going to be glad next week to not have to be questioning myself, but I want to talk to you about next week, and I, I made this point with the people in the first service. Those of those of us who are attending that first service next week are not second-class citizens just because they won't be in this room. And I want you to understand that. And there's some ways that you and I can minister to them and, and, and show love to them. And one of the ways is, I would just suggest to you, bring a mask next week and go in there and talk to them. The whole point of us being under a roof together is so that we can fellowship. And, and, and so just because they're not going to be live in there doesn't mean that church leaders aren't going to be in there with them. I, I kind of blew Paul's mind this morning. I said, I'm already wondering if I can preach in there and we can video it in here once. And, 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 and to say that, um, I want to say about Paul and Garrett and Daryl, who are all right now working while we're and serving us while we're sitting here. Um, right now, Garrett and Paul are over in the other room, like, brushing up and making sure that everything's working right for next week. And Daryl's a one-man band back there trying to keep everything afloat. And um, I appreciate their hard work. And, and, and I hope that you appreciate their hard work. I hope if you're online watching, you, you realize it isn't just a matter of just, you know, we just popped a camera out and it all just happens. Um, lots of hard work went into it, and I appreciate all of their hard work. They've served us well, and they're going to continue to serve us well. And I just want to encourage you, don't, don't treat that room next week like they have leprosy or something, okay? Go in there and love them, okay? Go in there and love them. Make them feel like they're a part of this. That's the whole goal is to get us under one roof so that we can return back to something that's close to normal, whatever that is, whatever that is. So Luke chapter 9 this morning. One of the best ways to learn a craft or a skill is to practice, right? It's to practice. Athletes and musicians practice under the watchful eyes of coaches and trainers and teachers. Um, in the building trades, it's very common that, that when you begin, you start work as an apprentice and you serve under somebody who's more experienced and they, they teach you all you know. Um, 26, I think it was 26 years ago when I became a real estate appraiser, I had to have many hours, like over a thousand hours of supervised appraising before I could sit for the test and be licensed in the state of Ohio. So it's not uncommon to, to have on-the-job training and apprenticeship. Um, I jokingly say that doctors are doing it all their lives because after all they say they're practicing medicine. Dr. Fowl, when will you stop practicing and actually just do it, dude? <laughs> I had to pick on you. I had to pick on you. But, but honestly, um, you know, we all have to be apprenticed, don't we? We all have to, we have, to have a little on-the-job training, and Jesus himself believed in it. 
Jesus himself believed in on-the-job training. Um, we come to Luke 9, and, and I think it's important to note that even though we're not even halfway into the book of Luke, I think you need to know where we are in the scope of Jesus' life and ministry. By the time we get to Luke chapter 9, we're, we're roughly 18 months into the, the three years of Jesus' ministry here. So, so we're halfway into it, and in many ways, um, the honeymoon is over. The honeymoon is over. The religious leaders already really don't like Jesus. And now they're beginning to turn some of the people against Jesus. And so it's getting a little bit harder. In one way, he's getting to the, the height of his popularity, but it's about to plateau and fall off. And so as we come to this point, Jesus is now shifting his focus. And pretty soon he's going to leave the Galilee area. And in many ways, the reason he was in Galilee for so long was it was the, it was the it was the place that he used to train his 12 men, these 12 who were his disciples. It was, it was their training ground. And for, you know, roughly 18 months, they're following Jesus wherever he goes. They're observing everything. And, and, and let's just be honest here. Put yourself in the shoes of these disciples. It was pretty cool for 18 months to just follow Jesus. Everywhere he goes, there's large crowds that show up. And every morning you wake up, you're thinking, I wonder what he's going to do today. I mean, just, wouldn't that be cool? I mean, just to observe that. But then we come to Luke chapter 9, and all of a sudden it changes. It changes. And, 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 and all of a sudden, one day, he gathers them together and he says, okay, you've watched me do this, now go do it. Scary times, right? All of a sudden, all of a sudden, the shoe's on the other foot. And he's going to send them out for their first taste of ministry, and he's going to do it without being with them. Now, he's not with them, but he is still with them. We understand that. But physically, he's not going to be with them. And, and chapter 9 is a significant place in your Bible, because it's at this point that 12 men go from being disciples to being apostles. They go from being disciples to being apostles. And you say, well, I just thought that disciples and apostles were kind of synonymous and that, and that they were the same thing. Well, they're not. And, and this morning, I don't want to fill your head full of knowledge, but I do have to give you a little bit of knowledge here that's going to be really helpful for you for understanding. But, but it, the goal this morning isn't just to leave you smarter than what you came in. The goal this morning is that we will understand that while we're not called to be disciples, the ministry that we're called to is very similar to the apostles' ministry. If, if you want to put it this way, there were 12 big A apostles, but you and I are all called to be small A ambassadors for Christ. And that ministry looks very similar. But a disciple, by definition, is nothing more than a learner. And for 18 months, these men have been learning. They, they've learned as Jesus has taught. They've learned by watching Jesus as he's interacted with, with, with people, meeting them in their points of need. He, he, they've learned about how Jesus conducted himself in situations. And now they become apostles. Apostles mean nothing more than ones who are sent. Ones who are sent. They're sent to carry a message. Now, specifically in the Bible here, there were 12 apostles, and to be an apostle, you, you had to meet certain requirements. Number one, you, you had to be trained by Jesus. You had to be trained by Jesus, and number two, you had to be sent out by Jesus. In thinking about the makeup of, these, of this group of guys, one thing stands out to me. 
And it just kind of dawned on me this week, and I don't know why it had never dawned on me before. But there's one notable group from society that's missing in being represented in the group of disciples. You have some professional men there. You have some blue-collar workers. You have pretty much 12 ordinary men. But there's one significant part of Jewish society that's not represented in that group of men. And it's the religious establishment. There's nobody who's called from the religious establishment to be a part of this group of 12. And, And it shouldn't surprise us then that the religious establishment is so upset with Jesus. They don't even have anybody represented in his group. They haven't known anybody that's been invited into his inner circle. But the other thing I want to point out to us this morning, and and bring it in light of current events this week, because if you paid attention at all to current events this week within the Christian community, this has been a sad week. This has been a sad week. A man who was revered to be a guy who was really godly and that people went to to get answers about what's going on in the scriptures was, was revealed to be Nothing like what he said he was. Some of you are like, who is he talking about? Well, when you leave here, don't do it now. When you leave here, Google Ravi Zacharias and what happened to his ministry this week and how it's been revealed. But I point that out to point out that even Jesus had a traitor in his group of 12. Did he not? Jesus had a Judas in his group. And and I think it's important for us to understand and, and to come to grips with this. We are not called as Christians to follow popular men. We're called to follow Christ. And and men, as they point us to Christ and as they emulate Christ, they're worthy of being followed. But the minute that they stop emulating Christ, we, we don't follow them. And, and so when we hear news, and, and I think more and more until Christ returns, we're going to hear about Christian leaders who really aren't what they put themselves out to be. Don't be shocked by that. Even in Jesus' group of 12, there was a Judas. Even in his group of 12, there was a Judas. Now, we know that Judas was replaced by a guy named Matthias. We find that in Acts chapter 1. But there's one other apostle, and and if you're thinking, you know who it is. Who's the other apostle that's not listed in the 12 and that's not Matthias? Paul. And you say, how could Paul be an apostle? Because Paul wasn't there when Jesus was was there on earth and, and training his disciples. Well, we know that Paul's an apostle because he claims apostleship in many of his letters at the very beginning. He says, I'm an apostle of God. But it's not just because he claims apostleship. He meets the criteria. Did Paul meet Jesus face to face? Yes, he did on the road to Damascus. Was Paul trained personally by Jesus? Yes, he was. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 12, he says that he received the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? And, 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 and I personally believe that Paul spent three years on the backside of the desert with Christ as his trainer. Now, what's the importance of apostles? And say, PD, why are you spending all this time talking about apostles? Because without the apostles, we wouldn't be where we are today. And think about it in a couple ways. In Ephesians 4.11, Paul says that they're given to the church by God. In 1 Corinthians 12.28, it says that Paul, or Paul says that Christ first appointed in the church apostles. In many ways, 
what we do today rises and falls on the ministry of the apostles. You say, well, give me an example of this. Well, the very fact that you have a New Testament is a result of apostles. Your New Testament was either written by an apostle or written by a guy who was a close associate of an apostle. Okay? Most of, most of Paul's letters, written by an apostle, right? Then you have Revelation, written by John, an apostle. You have the book of Luke, written by Luke, who is an associate of an apostle, Paul. Without the apostles, we don't have the New Testament record. And so the apostles are really important. But there are some today that if you turn on your radio or your TV and they claim to be apostles, I ask you this question. Are there apostles in the biblical understanding of apostles today? No. No. There, there aren't those who are trained by Christ and sent out directly by Christ still alive today. But... In many ways, you and I are called, as I mentioned before, to an apostolic ministry in terms of we are the ambassadors of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20 says that we are called to represent Christ. And so what we learn in this text today will be very instructive to us, not as apostles, but as ambassadors. So with that in mind, I want to read Luke chapter 9, and I'm just going to read verses 1 through 9 this morning. And he called the twelve together, and he gave them authority, or power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see them. Father, this morning as we begin to dig into this text of Scripture, we, we, need, we need wisdom and we need understanding. We need the Holy Spirit to, to come and take the truth of your word and write it deep in our hearts. We thank you for the apostles, for their ministry. And we, we recognize this morning that without the apostolic ministry, we, we're left with not much. And so we also recognize this morning that we are called as those who, who are, are learning Christ to also emulate their ministry. We're called to be ambassadors. So this morning, we don't want to just learn to be smarter. We want to learn to be changed. So work in our heart, Spirit, this morning, we pray. May we, may we understand where the power and authority comes from, and may we understand the importance and purpose of our mission that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin this morning, I want you to see just a real simple point here at the very beginning. Where do apostles get their power and where do apostles get their authority? Well, we know from chapter 9 and verse 1 that Jesus brings them together and Jesus gives them, if you will, almost a transfer of power here. It's not that he's giving up his power, but he's transferring some of his power to them. And he, and he, he gives them power and authority. And those words are not synonymous. Those words are not synonymous. He gives them two things here. First, he gives them power. 
Think of power as just simply ability. Jesus gave them ability. Apart from Jesus giving them the ability, they don't have the ability to do the things that he's called them to do. But not only does he give them ability, he gives them the right to use that ability. You see, power in and of itself is not a great thing unless you have the right to exercise that power. And so these two things go together here. He gives them the right to use the power. In other words, they possess the same authority as the one who sent them. They possess the same authority as the one who sent them. So as these men now leave, when they go from village to village, in many ways Jesus is saying, you have the same power that I do to go in and do what I have done. Can you imagine what that must mean to these guys? I mean... If it's me, I'm, I'm almost, if, if I'm Peter, I just put myself in Peter's shoes, I'm almost thinking to myself, I wonder if I could turn that bush into like scrub brush real quick and just do that, you know? You know, I'm, I'm looking at the hangnail and I'm like, I wonder if I have the ability to, hmm, yeah, hangnail gone. This is, this is huge for them. They, they now have the ability to heal and, and to do these miracles. But, but they also now have the authority to act in Jesus' name. And, and, and that's huge because they're going out into villages and towns. Some of what we're going to see here is, is where they're not going to be received. And, and they have been given authority to act as Jesus would act in those situations. And I submit to you in a similar way, not the same way, but in a similar way, that you and I are called to be ambassadors, and the only power that we have is the power that's supplied by Jesus working through us. We're powerless apart from Christ being at work in us. Not only that, we don't have the authority to decide to do what we want to do. The only authority we have comes from Jesus himself. And I would submit that the only authority that we have comes as we're proclaiming his truth. The, the, the apostles here, the disciples, didn't have authority to go out and change government. They couldn't, they couldn't go down to Jerusalem and say this, okay, by the authority given to us by Jesus, who is the Son of God, we declare that, Pilate, you are no longer the governor over this area, but this is now Jesus' territory. They didn't have that authority. The authority they had was, was limited in this regard. They had the authority and power to bring healing to people, and they had the, the authority to carry the message of Jesus. It's the same authority that Peter recognizes in Acts chapter 3 and verse 6, where as he and John are going into the temple, the, the, the lame man is begging for, for, for alms from them. And remember, remember what they say, silver and gold we don't have, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. That's the authority they claim. And notice the authority they didn't draw attention to themselves. Peter didn't say, by the authority that I have, get up and walk. No, he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you get up and walk. So let's understand that, that even as ambassadors of Jesus, we have some power and we have some authority. We have some power and we have some authority. But power and authority are only good if you know how to use them, right? <laughs> One of the things we're seeing in our world today, and, and, and what we've even seen in the Christian community is, is that people get themselves in trouble whenever they abuse the power that they have and they abuse the authority that they have. 
And our power and authority only goes so far. The apostles' power and authority only went so far. And, and Jesus very carefully scoped out for them what the purpose of their ministry was. Look what it is in verse 2. He sent them out. This is, what's, this is what makes them apostles, that they're sent out. He sent them out to do two things. To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, they could have spent a lot of time doing some great preaching that wasn't proclaiming the kingdom of God. For instance, if you're one of the disciples who had been in the boat when Jesus calmed the sea, don't you think that would be a great way to warm up a crowd and tell that story from your perspective? You know, I was there. I was in the boat the night he did that. That was so cool. And, and you can, and man, I was so scared. And I, 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 and you could draw the attention to yourself, couldn't you? Or you could say, you know, I was there the day that Jesus brought that person back to life. You know, Peter, James, and John. I was in the room when he brought Jairus' daughter back to life. Man, that is so awesome. And you could make that ministry all about yourself. But the primary ministry that Jesus' apostles and Jesus' ambassadors are called to is proclaiming the kingdom of God. Do you see it there? Verse 2. He sent them out very specifically to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, we can wrestle with what the proclaiming the kingdom of God is, but fortunately, Luke connects the dots for us right in this passage. You just have to skip down to verse 6. And as you look at verse 6, here's what they do. They departed, and they went through the villages doing what? Preaching the what? The gospel. If you're the person that likes to mark in your Bible, draw a circle around the word gospel, connect it up to proclaiming the kingdom of God. Preaching the gospel and proclaiming the kingdom of God are one and the same thing. And let's understand, we don't get to choose what the message is. The message has been chosen for us. We are just called to proclaim the message. We don't get to choose what the message is. The primary ministry of, of Jesus' ministry was proclaiming the kingdom of God. How do I know that? Luke chapter 4 and verse 43, he said this, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. In chapter 8 and verse 1, it says that he went from town to town, village to village, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus was here and he was laser focused on bringing the good news of the kingdom to, to whoever would hear it. That good news is the gospel. And it begins with this, and he puts it in kingdom terms so that we could understand it and so that they could understand it in this time. We understand kingdom terms. We may not think we do, but we do. But kingdom always involves somebody who's ruling and reigning, doesn't it? Kingdom always involves somebody who's in charge. And let's understand, our message begins with this. It doesn't matter who you think is in charge God Almighty, this is his kingdom, this is his rule and his reign. And all of us are under the rule and reign of God. Every person that's alive, you're sitting here in this room this morning, you are under the rule and reign of Almighty God, whether or not you realize it. Whether or not you accept it, whether or not you submit to it, you are under God's authority. That's where the gospel begins. But it doesn't stop there. The good news of the gospel is, the good news that Jesus was proclaiming was, here I am, the Messiah, in your midst. The gospel has come to bear. I am here to do my ministry. 
And it is good news. The kingdom of God has arrived because through Christ, all of us who are rebels against the kingdom of God, make no mistake, every single one of us either was a rebel or is a rebel against the kingdom of God, right? Those of us who are rebels against his kingdom, God has done something amazing through Jesus. He offers us the ability to be reconciled to himself. It's a message that's not a popular one. It's a message that uses terms like sin and salvation and forgiveness. And that's not popular for a lot of people to hear, yes, you're a sinner. But here's the thing. Apart from us knowing that we're sinners, how do we know that there's any hope for our sin? <laughs> and so the message is, and the good news is, is that we're all sinners by nature. That, 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 and, and by sinners by nature, I mean that we're born with a sin nature. And not only that, we're all sinners by deed. Every single one of us in this room has committed sin. Some of us are committing sin right now. I don't know who you are. But we're all sinners, are we not? We're all sinners by nature and by deed. And because of that, we're guilty before God, the one who has established rule and reign, the one who, who, who rules over all, the one whose kingdom it is. But this God who rules over all has provided a means of rescue for us. Because we all deserve his judgment. We all deserve his wrath. We all deserve to be just kind of like in Alice in Wonderland, off with your head. Right? That's what we all deserve. And here's what God's done. He's provided through his son, Jesus, a means of rescue for us all. And the message of the kingdom of heaven is that, that there's forgiveness for the one who repents and the one who by faith receives what Christ has done, the one who rejects their own self-righteousness. And let's face it, we all are prone to offer our self-righteousness to God. I'm good enough, God. But that's contrary to what he tells us. There's none that are good enough. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's not one of us who's good enough. And so the message is, is that don't put confidence in yourself, but put confidence in the righteousness of Christ and trust in him. May I submit to you? That's the message that we're called to proclaim today. It's the message they proclaimed. It's the most important message that anyone will ever hear in their life is the fact that you can be reconciled to God. And our authority is in proclaiming this message. We don't have authority to stand in pulpits, to witness to other people, to say what our opinion is about what we think about God. No, we have no authority for that. Our authority comes when we proclaim the true message. That's the only authority that we have. And it's also where the power is. It's interesting that the first recorded message that we have of, of the apostles as they're sent out, the first recorded message isn't sometime during this time frame. The first recorded message that we have comes 18 months or so later when Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and guess what his message is? <laughs> his message is simply just the gospel. His message is a very pointed one. He's, he says, you know, God has raised up a Messiah and basically you, you people have crucified him. And guess what? If we were there, the finger would have been pointing at us. We'd have been the ones who would have crucified Jesus. But then he goes on to say, and today he offers to you this great salvation. And the Bible records for us that on that day, 3,000 people got saved. They got rescued. That's, 
That's the same message that they were called to fulfill when Jesus sent them out to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the other parts of the world. That's what the message is, and it's the same message that we have today. And so I ask you this morning, have you responded to that message? And if you have, there's a second follow-up question. Are you proclaiming that good news? That's what you're called to do. That's what we're called to do. But that's not the only ministry. You say, PD, there's something else in that verse. Yeah, verse 2, what else are they called to do? They're called to proclaim the kingdom of God and do what? What's it say? Heal. Yeah. And we have to ask ourselves, what, what's, what's, the, what's the point of, of this? Well, why did Jesus heal? Well, I think there's a couple reasons why Jesus healed and why he sent his, these apostles out to heal. Number one, because Jesus is a compassionate, loving Savior who wants to meet people's needs in their misery. Okay? And, and, and that's important for us to recognize. But secondly, and probably more importantly than even that is, when Jesus healed, it gave credibility to the message that he, that he was sharing. You see, it's one thing to say that you have power over life and death, and it's another thing to prove it when you raise somebody back to dead, isn't it? from the dead. What's interesting is, and if we had the time, I'd show you, but over the course of apostolic ministry, healing, healing kind of phases out. Early in the book of Acts, there's all kinds of healing going on. By the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, there's very little healing happening. There's very little healing happening, and we have to ask ourselves, why? Why? Why is this? What, well, I can submit to you this. By the time we get to the book of Acts, a lot of our New Testament is being written. And we don't need healing to validate the message. And, 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 and so I think we would all agree on that, or we would at least be willing to, to, to kind of, you know, give that some thought. But one of the things that I find so troubling about evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, is that because there's no more miraculous healing, and, and, and I, I'm, I, for one, get really upset when I turn on my TV and I see some guy waving his coat around and people falling down and they're supposedly healed. Folks, understand that's a lie from the pit of hell. Okay? Understand that's a lie from the pit of hell. There, there's no such thing as faith healing going on today. And so when I say that, we're like, okay, yeah, I agree to that. But one of the things we miss is, is that God still is the same yesterday and today and forever, and God is still healing people. God is healing people all over the place. And, and, and one of the things that we do is, is we discount these faith healers because we should and so-called faith healing ministries because they're, they're lies from the pit of hell and we discount the power of God. Folks, don't ever doubt the fact that God still is healing people today. And, and we're not called to be healers like the apostles were, but I want to submit to you. We're called to be compassionate ambassadors of the gospel who point people to the one who will heal them in Christ. Let me say that again. We're not called to a healing ministry. None of you, I mean, just check it out. Wave your index finger. Did you do anything with it? Point, point it at your spouse. See if you can heal them. Anybody get healed? We're not called to that. But we are called to a healing ministry. And our healing ministry is, is compassionately loving people in their point of need and pointing them to the one who can meet their needs, the almighty God, the Savior Christ. 
That's what we're called to do. Now, notice how Jesus provides for them in this ministry. Verse 3. I can sum up the provision of Jesus in two words. Very little. Do you see it there in verse 3? He said to them, take nothing for your journey. What? Seriously? Nothing? Yeah. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. Tunics, undershirts. Just, just one undershirt. Just the shirt you have on your back and go. Okay, are you scratching your head? Because I am when I read this. Seriously? What are you doing here, Jesus? Well, Jesus understands something. And it's something that we're seeing happen right in front of us in Christianity today. Those who have great power and great authority also have the ability to abuse that power and authority, don't they? And Jesus knows that these men could be tempted to abuse it and that they could use it for personal gain. As we see many false prophets around us today doing, and many false prophets in that day were doing, they were, they were taking the power and, and they were using it for their own personal gain. And so Jesus is basically keeping them very humble, but he's also doing something else. He's teaching them a very important lesson. If you go out with nothing, who do you have to depend on? You have to depend on the goodness of others, and you have to ultimately depend on God to provide, don't you? Keep your finger here and go with me to Luke chapter 22, because we have, we have the benefit of seeing what Jesus was up to, because Jesus, in his own words, explains what he was up to. Luke chapter 22. So when we get to Luke chapter 22, we're, we're in the upper room. This is the night before Christ is going to die. We're in the upper room. And, and, and if you look at, at your chapter there, you'll even see, if you have a Bible that has some headings, you'll see in verse 24, the disciples have just had that argument about who's the greatest and who's going to you know, get the prominent spot in heaven whenever they get there and, and all these things. Look at verse 35. Jesus is talking now to these disciples who have become apostles, who, have, who he's going to send out again. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And what's their answer? We didn't, we didn't lack anything. You took care of all of our needs. And now, lest you think that he's about to say to them, that's the way it's always going to be, look at the next verse. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. What's Jesus saying? I did this for you. It's, it's kind of like basic training for the military. It's kind of like basic training for the military. Do they make it really rough in basic training? Why? To prove that you can do this stuff, right? To, to, to make you the person you need to be. And now Jesus is saying, you now know you can depend on me to provide, but here's, what, here's the thing. Not only am I going to provide for you, but, but, but I provided some things for you, so take them with you when you go now. Jesus is not saying that we should keep our missionaries dirt poor. That's not what he's saying here. 
But what he's saying is, I will put you in situations where, where I am going to test your faith. And many of you can point back through your life and see where Jesus has put you in situations where you could do nothing but depend on him to prepare you for something in the future. And that's what he's doing here with these apostles. He's giving them an opportunity to build their faith. Go back to chapter 9. I love, I love this in verse 4. He says to them, and whatever house you enter, stay there and, 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 and from there depart. In other words, when you get to town, whatever person takes you in, you're going to stay there. Even if you find out the woman two doors down makes really good Italian. And she's a much better cook. Why is he saying this? He's teaching them an important principle that we all need to learn as we serve him, and that is to be content with the situation that he's put us in. It's like, stop looking for a better situation. Stop, and here's the reality. If you're looking for a better situation, can you always find one? Yeah. There's always something that looks better. And what he's saying is, be content with where you're at. But we gotta press on. The clock keeps moving. I hate that clock. There's consequences here in the message that they preached. You see it in verse five? There's consequences. Wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. The first thing I want you to see here is, is that either the gospel is going to be received or rejected. What's implied here is, is when they showed up in a town and people received the gospel, what were they supposed to do? If they showed up at a little village and the gospel was being received, what should they do? Stay there and just preach the gospel, Right? Just preach it all out. Just, just let everybody know about it. If they receive you there, you just keep preaching the word of God. But if they don't, what does he say? Leave. He's telling them to be discerning is what he's telling them to be. Be discerning here. And, 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 he, and he, he says, when you leave, give them an object lesson. Do you see the object lesson there in verse 5? When you leave town, you shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. This is something every good Jew knew how to do. Every good Jew knew how to do this. Because if you were a Jew and you went into Gentile territory or if you went into Samaritan territory, when you left that territory, when you literally crossed the boundary, when you went from Ohio or from Michigan into Ohio, you shook off the dust off your feet. It's like, I'm not going to be affected by their dirt. And what is he saying here? What's he saying to them? Well, we might see that as, that's just kind of snobbish. But that's not at all. It's, it's really an object lesson that is a means of mercy for the people who are watching it. And here's what I mean by that. <laughs> it's, a, it's an object lesson that are going to make some people think, one of Jesus' followers was just here preaching the gospel and none of us really listened. And as he's leaving, he's shaking the dirt off his feet. What does that say about my spiritual condition? What does that say about my heart? That he's shaking the dust off of his feet. What it's saying is, is that judgment is coming and am I ready? And here's the reality for all of us in this room this morning. And, and, I, and I want you to understand this. This is coming from a heart of love. Whether or not you understand it, whether or not you believe it, here's the truth. Judgment is coming. 
Maybe you're in this room and you're young and you think, I got plenty of time for judgment. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Judgment is coming. Maybe you're here and and you're in the prime of life and you think to yourself, I've got plenty of time to make things right with God. You don't know. Judgment's coming. And so when they shake off the dust of their feet, they're reminding them that judgment is coming. And this morning, I would be remiss if I didn't remind you, judgment is coming. It is coming. And the only thing that will matter on that day is what you have done with Jesus Christ. It's not going to matter how good you were. It's not going to matter what kind of athlete you were. It's not going to matter how you raised your kids. It's not going to matter whether you went to church. It's not going to matter how much money you put in the bank or how much money you gave to, to good causes. None of that matters in that day. There's only one thing. What have you done with Jesus Christ? Which leads me to the final point that just seems like a real tack on. Like, verses 7 through 9. Why, why Luke? Why did you put those verses there? You know, verse 6. They went and preached the gospel. Yay, go team. But now, verses 7 through 9. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. Understand what's going on here. The ministry of Jesus has just expanded by 12. The word is really getting out now. And it gets Herod's attention. Herod is this ruler. He's a tetrarch. That means he's one of four who, who later, Herod, King Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill Jesus, his kingdom, his rule got divided in four. So this is Herod, one of the sons, okay? He's a tetrarch. He only has one-fourth of that area. And, and, and he's really troubled because people are saying that John the Baptist is back to life. But here's the thing. And let me give you a brief history of what's going on here. Why would he be troubled about John the Baptist? Well, the reason he's troubled about John the Baptist is, is John the Baptist was really a, a burr in Herod's saddle. Okay? King Herod was married to a, to a foreign woman. It was arranged marriage so that they could gain more territory and rule over her, her father's kingdom. It was an arranged marriage. And he didn't like his wife, but he liked his brother's wife a lot. So much so that he divorced his wife and married his brother's wife. And when John found out about that, John just like, John the Baptist, he can't keep his mouth shut, right? So he preaches directly against it. And what does Herod do? You're going to jail, dude. You are going to rot in jail. But Mrs. Herod is really offended by this. How dare you call my marriage illegitimate? And one day her daughter, who is Herod's stepdaughter, is dancing in front of this this large party that Herod's thrown. And Herod's probably drunk and out of his mind. And he says to her, that was such a beautiful dance. I will give you whatever you want. And her, her mother says to her, ask for John's head on a platter. And guess what he had to do? Behead John and present the head to the daughter. And now Herod hears that he's back to life and he's like, no, 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 I know I took care of him. Now the whole point of this is to get you to verse 9. And I want you to see this. And I want you to catch this. Whether you're an apostle or whether you're an ambassador, your ministry should produce this question. 
If you're an ambassador of Jesus, your ministry should, should produce this question. Do you see what the question is in verse 9? Who is this about whom I hear such things? Gospel ministry is, when it's successful, it brings all the attention to Jesus. It brings all the attention to Jesus. It doesn't bring the attention to ourselves. It brings all the attention to the one who actually can do something about our situation. Herod had the right question. Who is this? And, 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 and as we leave here this morning, our message, this is our first point of application, our message must be, our must be, the gospel must be designed in such a way and presented in such a way so that it brings people face to face with Jesus. It's, it's not about, well, you know, the gospel just, just so radically made my life so much better, and I fear that's the way the gospel is being presented today. Just come to Jesus and your life will be so much better. No. Come to Jesus and admit that you're a sinner and have your sins forgiven. If our message and our focus isn't on Jesus, then we're not being good, good ambassadors. But secondly, I want you to remember this. When you do proclaim the gospel and when you do proclaim Jesus, you're doing it with the power and the authority of Almighty God. I mean, you think about that. You think about some of the most powerful people in the world today and the things that they're able to do with that power. You have something far more powerful with more authority, and that is presenting the gospel to people. Is there, is there an authority greater than God's authority? Is there a power greater than God's power? And when you and I share the gospel, we do it with the power and the authority of Almighty God himself. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. And thirdly, I don't want you to forget this. There's a second point to our ministry to the world. Yes, yes, we are to proclaim the kingdom of heaven, but we're also to provide compassion to the world that we live in. We can't heal, but we can point people to the one who does heal. And what this world doesn't need is more people punching it in the face. Do you ever feel like everywhere you go, somebody's punching you in the face, just assaulting you with words? That's not what the gospel is designed to do. The gospel is designed to bring hope and healing to the greatest needs that people have. God help us to be those kinds of ambassadors.